Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we are convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Packer. Our God and our Father, we praise you as the God who is above all gods. Your power has been seen this morning as we've sung your praises. And even the gift of breath that we woke up with this morning would not be possible were it not for your sustaining in our world, for your providence, for all that you provide for us. This morning, God, as we open this book, this ancient word, my prayer is that uh, you would bring... uh, your word to us that is as relevant as ever, God, for our life here today. And I pray that you'd speak to each one as they need in particular ways. God, I pray this morning you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over the last four weeks, we've been in a series called Ahead of Their Time. And in this series, what I've been trying to do is to look at some of these passages, particularly in the Old Testament, that sometimes seem primitive and barbaric, and to help us see that actually, if we look closer in their time period, these are, these are stories that are ahead of their time, ahead of the different gods that are pictured in the ancient Near East. These stories were ahead of their time, and I would suggest today they're still, in many ways, ahead of their time. And one of the key ideas I've tracked in a couple of these sermons is that God has a vision for the world he is trying to put into motion. And the way he chooses to put this vision into action is through a specific group of people. And it begins with Abram who receives this covenant and this calling to leave his family and his country and the land he's in and to go to this unidentified place. But eventually this tribe that starts off in that way ends up in Egypt. They end up as slaves in Egypt. And as they end up in this place, God hears their cry. We talked about this last week. God hears their cry. He liberates them. He remembers his covenant. And then he, through Moses, leads them through the Red Sea. And here's what I, where I want to share a principle that will set up the rest of the sermon this morning. And this is a principle I believe is not just uh, relevant to the text that's here, but I think it's relevant to our lives in so many different ways. And it's this. When you are freed from something. It's vital that you discover what you are being freed for. I'm going to come back to that idea. Think about it in this way, a person who is freed from some kind of addiction. Better discover what they are going to give their life to in the moments before that they gave their life to things that were sometimes coping mechanisms, but often brought destruction in many ways. If there's not a way to lead a life in those moments that are now led differently into something productive, often we find ourselves in other addictions that are not helpful either. 
when you're freed from something, it's vital to discover what you are being freed for. I have a friend who's a modern-day abolitionist. I like to call him that. He leads a ministry and is involved in West uh, Africa, in Ghana. And he spent some time on the ground there. Now he's back stateside. He's a friend of mine. And it's a group called Mercy Project. And what they do in Ghana is they take children that are being enslaved. They're fishing on Lake Volta in Ghana and trying to help work with those who are the enslavers in the midst of this economic system that's all they can imagine to keep things going, and they try to free them from that. And I'll tell you, it's really important, he tells me, that they don't just free them and release them back to their families and their lives. They need to be rehabilitated. It takes time to be able to move back, to have a vision for what life can be again, because it's important not just to be freed from something. It's vital to know what we are being freed for. This is the impulse that many people have when they, severe, they survive near-death experiences or who survive a car crash when others were killed in the incident. There can often be this feeling personally of survivor's remorse and many times people choose to believe that they were saved for a particular reason. And that's important to believe because when we are being freed or saved from something, it's vital to discover and to lean forward wondering what might I be being saved for? Because whether we want to admit it or not, our slavery, our abuse, our near-death experience has a way of impacting the rest of our lives if we are not intentional in dealing with the trauma that is experienced in those moments. The abusive relationship impacts our future relationships. The accident impacts us the next time we get behind the wheel. The grief of loss makes us want to protect and hold on to everything near and dear to us because there's a fear we might have to grieve and lose again. When Israel leaves Egypt, they have a challenge ahead because God's plan is that they would go to the promised land. But here's the question. How will they manage to lead themselves in a healthy way when they enter into the promised land? How will they choose to conduct and order their new society? Because these people, they grew up seeing a certain way the world was ordered, as we talked about last week. They grew up with authority figures uh, who used violence and intimidation. They used quotas and threats to try to get them to live and build this empire in Egypt. How do you lead healthy when all you've ever experienced is what's unhealthy? Some of you know that in particular ways in your life because you grew up perhaps with authority figures who you might have experienced abuse from or you might have endured some kind of trauma and when you've experienced unhealthy leadership in the home or in a workplace and you're trying to figure out how do I change this for the next generation it doesn't just happen automatically it can be sometimes difficult to figure out what is a positive trajectory when what I've experienced is so painful or said another way it's one thing to get Israel out of Egypt It's another thing to get Egypt out of Israel. Did you catch that difference? It's one thing to get Israel in a location through the Red Sea out of Egypt. God does that work, but it's a whole nother work to get the Egypt that had been living in Israel and to get it cast out. Remember, God's not interested in Israel becoming Egypt 2.0. God is interested in Israel being a tribe unlike all the other tribes. So how does this group of abused, distrusting former slaves somehow become a healthy tribe that will bless the rest of the tribes on earth? You're going to have to teach them to believe that there's something than what they were taught growing up. You're going to have to help them believe that they're actually humans created in the image of God who have something to offer to others. Today's sermon is about the law. 
I want to talk about the Ten Commandments, and I want to talk about the 603 other commandments we find throughout the Old Testament. Why was it important for all of these commands to be given to the people of Israel at this time? Because there's some pretty odd commands in this Old Testament. Can we agree on that? But I want to suggest today that all those commands were actually ahead of their time. These laws were put in place for a reason. Now, law codes have been around for a long time. In fact, a thousand years before the laws delivered at Mount Sinai to Moses, the code of Hammurabi shows up in the ancient Near East. A thousand years before. Since humans have been around, we've needed laws in order to order our society. Laws do several things. They help to establish standards for a society. Laws help to maintain order. Laws help to resolve disputes. Laws are there in order to ensure the rights of individuals. One of the first things a new nation must do if they're going to exist as a nation is to come up with a way they're going to order things. Who gets to decide? What are the laws that we believe are important? When America comes into existence, we had those discussions and made those decisions. And when the Israelites leave the Red Sea, they're going to have to make some of the same calls. And it's here at Sinai. Exodus chapter 20, if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open there. It's here at Sinai that God finally speaks. Now, God hasn't talked to a people since the Garden of Eden, not a group of people together. Things have been quiet. There's been an eerie sort of silence. There have been exchanges with individuals like Abraham and Noah and others along the way, but those are individuals. God hadn't spoken to a group of people since Eden. In fact, do you remember how the book of Exodus begins? It begins with the silence of God. For 400 years, the people of God have not heard a word from God. So when Moses tells the people at Sinai to prepare yourselves and then leads them out of the camp to meet with God, this is way about way more than just a group of desert wanderers finally hearing from God. This story is about a silence that has lasted generations. Sinai is the breaking of that silence. God is near. God's about to speak. In fact, some have suggested this is the only faith tradition, Christianity, along with Judaism as well, where God chooses to, to speak as a central event to a group of people all at one time. It simply never happened in the history of the world. And what God says on that mountain in the middle of the wilderness is crucial. Because before God speaks directly to the people, God tells Moses, I want you to remind them of the Exodus. In chapter 19, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. It's all grace. It's all gift to Israel. Rescue, redemption, liberation. It's all received from God. And then he says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now think for a minute what a priest is. A priest is a person who mediates the divine to other people. And what does it mean to mediate, right? Uh, to mediate is to come between. A priest comes between people and God. A priest shows you what his or her God is like. A priest lives in such a way that the people begin to pick up on, this is what's important to the priest. It must be important to God. This is what the priest speaks to as a value. That must mean that God values those things. So when God invites the people to be priests, it's an invitation to show the world who God is and what God wants for his world. Centuries after Genesis 12 and God's call to Abram, God is still calling Abram's descendants to be a unique, unique kind of people. 
These people are to be a tribe that live differently than the other tribes. They aren't supposed to live and rule like Egypt did. That was not the way God intended. God heard the cry of the people who were treated that way. No, they have to imagine a new way as they enter the promised land. At Sinai, Israel is re-entering a covenant that was made with Abram. I like to think of it as Israel's wedding ceremony with God. Sinai is like a wedding. Sinai is the coming together of the divine and the human. God and humanity are coming together and God is looking for a body that's going to put on display to the world what he is like and what he longs for. And the Ten Commandments are like the wedding vows at this wedding. You can call them the Ten Commandments, but I like to think of them this morning as the Ten Vows. And what are vows? Well, vows are the commitments that we make to one another about how we're going to do life and interact with one another in relationship. It's what we commit to one another, how we're going to live together. And that changes the way you see these commandments if you read it this way. Exodus 20, verse 3, listen to the first vow. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, that sounds very familiar if you've ever been to a wedding before. The vows I usually read at the wedding include this promise. Do you vow here before these witnesses that you will be true and loyal, patient in sickness, comforting in sorrow, and forsaking all others? Keep yourself only unto her or him so long as you both shall live. See, deciding to marry a person includes another decision, and that decision is to forsake all others. When you marry, you enter into an exclusive partnership. And at Sinai, it's the same exact way. If we're in this together, there can't be any other gods. This is an exclusive partnership we're joining. It will only work if we only have each other. And this is where the laws delivered to Moses actually go a step further than any law that Hammurabi gives a a thousand years before. This is getting to another place, and I'm going to show that in just a moment. I want to read from Exodus 20, verse 8, the fourth vow that's there. Let's read together. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not uh, do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female servant, nor your slave, nor your animals, for, uh, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now there's no command for the rhythm of work and rest in Hammurabi's code. And when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, there was no rest. It was quotas all the time. There was work to be done. There were no days off. I find it interesting that even the servants in this passage are told, you're not property, you're a human being, which is not what Egypt felt in this moment. Remember, it's one thing to get Israel out of Egypt, but it's another thing entirely to get Egypt out of Israel. Creation story lets us know about this rhythm, doesn't it? Six days of work, God rests on the seventh day. God's created us with the same needs in our lives making sure that we take a day of rest, making sure that quotas aren't the only thing that drive us. So God creates for six days and rests on the seventh. See, the Ten Commandments are introducing us to a new way to be human. They're rehumanizing these people that have been treated as animals, as property. And that means that Sabbath rest is crucial because they need to remind themselves, you're a human being. And you can see the same effect in the commands that follow. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder like was the way of dealing in death in Egypt. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery 
In other words, your word matters, your commitment. Exodus 20, verse 15, you shall not steal like you did in Egypt to make sure you secured enough bread for your family. You shall not, in verse 16, give false testimony against your neighbor like in Egypt where you learned that lying was the only language that could protect you from those who sought your harm. And then once again, the 10th commandment moves against Hammurabi to another step that I want us to see that Jesus is going to come back to later on as I read a little bit in the New Testament later today. The, the, the command there is you shall not covet. So this command is not about preserving external order in a society, right? There's no court of law that can determine something that internal about coveting in our lives. The law can only uh, make sure that we don't do certain things that are external, not what's going on internally, but the Ten Commandments go a step further. They move into the sense of if you want external health, you're going to have to have internal health. We can determine if people break external laws. This is one we can't determine. It matters what your heart desires. Your desires can master your life if you're not careful. See, the Ten Commandments are proof that Israel is not just being freed from something. They're being freed for something. They're a kingdom of priests. They will be flesh and blood body who will show the world what the divine Yahweh is like. Freedom, love, justice, and equality are mere virtues. They're mere words. But what they need is a body of people who are going to live these words out to show that God really cares about these things because these people are being liberated for something. And these laws are ahead of their time. They intend to rehumanize Israel. Before Israel can become a new nation in the promised land, they have to become human again. They're no longer in Egypt, but they have to have Egypt removed from them. And this is how it works, isn't it? Think about your own life for a moment. Some of you know what it's like to be treated like an animal. Some of you have been treated like property. Some of you have grown up in heart-wrenching situations. Others of you have gone down paths where you weren't sure how to take the next healthy step. When we've experienced trauma, when we're trying to pick up the pieces of our lives, what is it that we need to start over again well? We need chaos, more fragmenting, more disorder. No, what you need in those situations is someone to help you order your life again. When a recovering addict moves into a rehab center, are they told, you know, go to bed when you want, wake up when you want, eat what you want, just hang out and hopefully the vibes will line up? No. A good treatment center says lights out at this time, we wake up at this time, We write in our gratitude journal, and then we have breakfast, and then we serve, and then we have group therapy, and then we have one-on-one therapy, and then we read together. What you need when your life spirals out of control is order. You need clear boundaries. You need concise direction that helps you take ordered steps in a particular direction. When these people leave slavery and enter the wilderness, all these laws can seem incredibly narrow when we read them today. Have you ever read through Leviticus and Numbers? You're just reading law after law and you're wondering, why am I reading all this? Do this, don't do this. And I want to say, yes, exactly. Because this is about people learning a new way to be human. It's about a new ordering of the world. Of course it's going to include order and structure and intention and boundaries. That's always how it works when you begin to head in a new direction. There's ministries in our church that are helping people do this very thing, right? 
Financial Peace University is trying to help people who've uh, let things get a little bit out of control, or maybe there's been a situation that's taken them down a road, and right, they don't know what to do in response. And what Financial Peace University and the Vosses and others are trying to do is to help them take steps, orderly steps that will make a difference. Celebrate Recovery is the same exact way, isn't it? Celebrate Recovery is a way to say, hey, here's 12 steps that if you will work them through with us, you may not know what step to take next, but these have been proven. They've helped us. And the first step is going to be to step out of denial and try to order your life again. Some of you have learned to be human again. Learn to order your life again because we all get in moments where this is necessary. When you're at your lowest, you don't need someone to say, hey, just kind of go along and see where the river takes. That's not what you need. What you need is someone to say, you're a mess. I see it. And you see it. Now here's what we're going to do together. Now here's what's so cool about the book of Exodus. The first half of the book of Exodus, the first 19 chapters, celebrates the story of Israel's liberation from external oppression. There's nothing that Israel could do to free themselves from the Egyptians. It's going to take an act of God to free them from these external uh, chains that they have around them. But the second half of Exodus can't be left out. And sometimes it's a bit more boring to read than the first half. But I'm telling you, if right now you feel like your life is in disorder, if right now you feel like you're not sure the next step to take, the second half of Exodus does something important for us. It celebrates Israel's liberation from the internal spiritual oppression of personal sin, freeing human beings from the dominating powers of greed and impatience and ingratitude. You see that? This law liberates Israel from the very thing the Exodus cannot liberate them from. The Exodus frees them from Egypt. The law frees them and gives them a prescription for how Egypt can get out of Israel. What about us in 2019, right? What do you do with 613 of these laws where a lot of them you don't even know how you would apply them? You don't have a temple to go to with a priest that knows anything about sacrificing and killing animals. I'll assure you that. Never got that class. But we've come a long way since Moses. We didn't grow up in slavery. We were born well after the time of Jesus. In fact, Jesus had to ask these, this very question himself, right? How are we going to interpret this body of law that helped these people at this one point and make it helpful for these people in front of them? The early church had to make the same decision. What do we do about the circumcision thing when it comes to the Gentiles who are coming in? Every new situation and culture begs us to go back and look at the law and say, what needs to be held on to and what needs to be let go of as cultural and of the time? Now, there's some laws that I imagine will always make sense regardless of the context. Ten Commandments are a pretty good place to start. Do not murder is a law I have a hard time imagining will be discarded anytime soon. But commands about Jewish festivals, prohibitions against wearing two kinds of fabric and the same garment, I'd like to check some tags out in the crowd this morning, or how to sacrifice a Passover lamb, are commands that we've chosen to see as contextual and no longer needed at this time. But the question is, how do you make those decisions? How do you decide what stays and how do you decide what goes? Or how do you decide what was cultural and that needs to be carried forward in a new principle in a new way? And Jesus had to make those decisions. And in his preaching, he interprets the law at another level. Because again, when Israel started out, they needed 613 laws. 
In the midst of their trauma, in the midst of learning to be human again, in the midst of the chaos, they needed someone to order a path for them, and God does that. They need concrete, clear instructions about how to do life when they're no longer slaves. It's all new. Israel's like a child. But as Israel ages and goes through the pains of exile, they're learning, they're growing, and because of that, their need for the law changes. At first, what they need to hear is this, can we just not kill each other anymore? Can we at least commit to that? But later on, Jesus will say, you've heard that it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, don't, don't even be angry with a brother or sister. And you'll be subject to judgment if you are. He'll say, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. He's quoting the Ten Commandments. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount as he takes these commandments? He takes two of the Ten Commandments that are focused on external sins, and he goes a level deeper with them. He says, if you'll work on anger and lust, you won't have to worry about murder and adultery. Was Israel ready to hear that coming out of Egypt? No. But are they ready to hear it later on in their journey after exile? Jesus thinks the answer is yes. Paul says it this way in another book in the Bible in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Turn with me there if you would. I love this set of verses and the way it helps us see the law and its continuing purpose. Again, uh, the Galatian church is a church that struggles with legalism. This is what Paul writes to them. Galatians 3, verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So Paul's writing this church is dealing with legalism, trying to figure out what stays and what goes. And he says, before Jesus showed up on the scene, you were in bondage to the law. But now that Jesus has come, you're no longer supervised by the law. In other words, you were once children in the midst of trauma, trying to figure out how to be human again. But there comes a time where you need to realize you're an adult. You get to walk with others that are walking through those earlier stages. You're in process. There's a fascinating word in verses 24 and 25 that I want to focus in on that Paul chooses. And I like this a lot. The word guardian is how it's translated in the NIV. But that's a translation of the Greek word paedagogon. And I like that word a lot. So you're going to say it with me, okay? Say it with me. Paedagogon. You're, you're getting the idea of it, right? In the first century, a paedagogon or a paedagogos, the noun, was a trustworthy slave who was charged with the duty of supervising the life and morals of boys of their masters. So the master would have a slave, a servant, that would be this paedagogos, that would be the supervisor, the guardian. So anytime those boys left the house in that time, until they were adults, this paedagogos would go with them. A guardian, a supervisor, a paedagogos. Some of you are in that role right now with your children, right? You're a supervisor. You're a guardian. As a parent, your job is to teach your kids boundaries so that when they grow old enough, they can supervise themselves. For example... Some of you yell at a very loud pitch to your kids. Don't run into the street. And if no one knew the context of the level of your voice 
And no one saw the context around which you were saying a statement like that. They might think, man, what an awful parent. Why are you yelling at your kids? But the reality is our five-year-old Brooklyn doesn't fully understand why she's supposed to do that. But our hope is that if we keep supervising and guarding her in this time while she's a child, there will come a day where she can supervise herself and understand fully why she isn't to do that. Our kids have a bedtime. We're trying to set boundaries so that one day they'll be able to choose to get enough sleep on their own without our supervision. Which brings me to one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. It's the center of our vision as a church. We say it every week. It's a passage I've preached on before and I won't be ashamed to pick up again. It's in Matthew 22. Turn with me there if you would. Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked a question by a teacher of the law. The man asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? I want you to listen to Jesus' reply in verse 37. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to this last verse. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I think it's really interesting that when Jesus asked this question about what's the most important commandment in the law, Jesus doesn't say, well, all of them are important. How could I possibly narrow it down? Learn all centering of them. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't struggle. He says immediately, love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And then comes the clincher. And it's what we need to hear this morning in light of this question of how do we read the 613 commands? How do we take the law? How do we see it now? What is its role? All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is huge. When Israel was learning to be human again after being treated as animals in Egypt, they needed 613 laws. They needed instructions about everything under the sun. These laws were making them human again. These laws were ordering their chaotic world. But when Jesus comes along, Israel has grown up a bit. They've experienced the consequences of their sin. They've been punished in exile. And Jesus says, look, if you can keep these two laws... Love God, love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to be okay with the rest of it. And it's true. Think back in your own life. Of those mistakes you've made over the years that God's forgiven you for, but of those things that sometimes linger around with ongoing guilt and sometimes improper shame. Every single sin that we've ever committed in this room either broke the command to love God with everything we have or to love our neighbor as ourselves, Every single one of them. Sin is the failure to love God and or love your neighbor well. I like Jesus' teaching in Matthew 23. But, uh, in 22. But that doesn't affect the fact that in the time when the law was given at Sinai, it was the very thing that Israel needed at that time as well. These laws helped Israel live as a different kind of tribe. These laws allowed Israel to imagine a way of ruling different from the way they'd seen in Egypt. These laws were ahead of their time. And we would do well to follow the laws that Jesus has given to us who are no longer under that guardian. All the law and prophets are summed up in a real simple thing that we say every Sunday. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let us pray together. Father, I thank you for the gift that the law has been through the generations. Many of us understand what it's like to walk through the chaos of a family system that left us unsure how to navigate the world. Many of us have experienced trauma, or we've experienced debt, or we've experienced some kind of addiction or sin that stays with us, that we've wondered, is there possible there's another way to live? And God, your ten commandments, your ten vows that you give to your people were just what was needed. In fact, they're just what our society needs in our own day, God, is to live up to just those ten. And then you give so many more because we know what it's like to need somebody to order and structure our lives, to point us in the way forward. At one point, we needed a guardian. And I want to submit this morning that many of us still need that guardian, God. Many of us this morning are in distress. We're wondering about a way forward. And God, these commands, they instruct us well. They help us to see the way to go. But God, I know that an external code can never change an internal heart. And ultimately, murder and adultery are not risks if we really do follow the two great commands. And not just those two. All of the sins, God, that we sometimes rank as lesser but are even in your mind with the ones that Jesus talks about in the book of Matthew, they, they really do cause estrangement from you and they disorder the world and they cause a lot of harm and reconciliation is needed. And so, God, my prayer this morning is that we would heed the words of Jesus and that we would thank you for the ways that you have set up your scriptures in order to lead children to faith, in order to lead teenagers to faith, and in order to bring back anyone who is new to faith at any stage or those who've grown cold over the years. So God, would you direct our steps as you promise as we trust in you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and all God's people say, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow Jesus because you're convinced, like we are, that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Make sure to give us a rating and review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.